We continue with our reading of Baker v. Carr. Part 4 Justiciability In holding that the subject matter of this suit was not justiciable, the district court relied on Colgrove v. Green and subsequent per curiam cases. The court stated, quote, From a review of these decisions, there can be no doubt that the federal rule is that the federal courts will not intervene in cases of this type to compel legislative reapportionment, unquote. We understand the district court to have read the cited cases as compelling the conclusion that, since the appellants sought to have a legislative apportionment held unconstitutional, their suit presented a political question and was therefore non-justiciable. We hold that this challenge to an apportionment presents no non-justiciable political question. The cited cases do not hold the contrary. Of course, the mere fact that the suit seeks protection of a political right does not mean it presents a political question. Such an objection is little more than a play upon words. Rather, it is argued that apportionment cases, whatever the actual wording of the complaint, can involve no federal constitutional right except one resting on the guarantee of a Republican form of government, and that complaints based on that clause have been held to present political questions which are non-justiciable. We hold that the claim pleaded here neither rests upon nor implicates the guarantee clause, and that its justiciability is therefore not foreclosed by our decisions of cases involving that clause. The district court misinterpreted Colgrove v. Green and other decisions of this court on which it relied. Appellants claim that they are being denied equal protection is justiciable, and if discrimination is sufficiently shown, the right to relief under the Equal Protection Clause is not diminished by the fact that the discrimination relates to political rights. To show why we reject the argument based on the Guarantee Clause, we must examine the authorities under it. But because there appears to be some uncertainty as to why those cases did present political questions, and specifically as to whether this apportionment case is like those cases, we deem it necessary first to consider the contours of the political question doctrine. Our discussion, even at the price of extending this opinion, requires review of a number of political question cases in order to expose the attributes of the doctrine, attributes which in various settings diverge, combine, appear, and disappear in seeming disorderliness. Since that review is undertaken solely to demonstrate that neither singly 
nor collectively do these cases support a conclusion that this apportionment case is non-justiciable. We, of course, do not explore their implications in other contexts. That review reveals that in the Guarantee Clause cases and in the other political question cases, it is the relationship between the judiciary and the coordinate branches of the federal government and not the federal judiciary's relationship to the states which gives rise to the political question. We have said that in determining whether a question falls within the political question category, the appropriateness under our system of government of attributing finality to the action of the political departments and also the lack of satisfactory criteria for a judicial determination are dominant considerations. The non-justiciability of a political question is primarily a function of the separation of powers. Much confusion results from the capacity of the political question label to obscure the need for case-by-case inquiry. Deciding whether a matter has in any measure been committed by the Constitution to another branch of government or whether the action of that branch exceeds whatever authority has been committed, is itself a delicate exercise in constitutional interpretation, and is a responsibility of this court as ultimate interpreter of the Constitution. To demonstrate this requires no less than to analyze representative cases and to infer from them the analytical threads that make up the political question doctrine. We shall then show that none of those threads catches this case. Foreign Relations There are sweeping statements to the effect that all questions touching foreign relations are political questions. Not only does resolution of such issues frequently turn on standards that defy judicial application or involve the exercise of a discretion demonstrably committed to the executive or legislature, but many such questions uniquely demand single-voiced statement of the government's views. Yet, it is error to suppose that every case or controversy which touches foreign relations lies beyond judicial cognizance. Our cases in this field seem invariably to show a discriminating analysis of the particular question posed in terms of the history of its management by the political branches of its susceptibility to judicial handling in the light of its nature and posture in the specific case, and of the possible consequences of judicial action. For example, though a court will not ordinarily inquire whether a treaty has been terminated, since on that question governmental action must be regarded as of controlling importance, if there has been no conclusive governmental action, then a court can construe a treaty and may find it provides the answer. 
though a court will not undertake to construe a treaty in a manner inconsistent with a subsequent federal statute. No similar hesitancy obtains if the asserted clash is with state law. While recognition of foreign governments so strongly defies judicial treatment that without executive recognition, a foreign state has been called a republic of whose existence we know nothing, and the judiciary ordinarily follows the executive as to which nation has sovereignty over disputed territory. Once sovereignty over an area is politically determined and declared, courts may examine the resulting status and decide independently whether a statute applies to that area. Similarly, recognition of belligerency abroad is an executive responsibility, but if the executive proclamations fall short of an explicit answer, a court may construe them seeking, for example, to determine whether the situation is such that statutes designed to assure American neutrality have become operative. Still again, Though it is the executive that determines a person's status as representative of a foreign government, the executive's statements will be construed where necessary to determine the court's jurisdiction. Similar judicial action in the absence of a recognizedly authoritative executive declaration occurs in cases involving the immunity from seizure of vessels owned by friendly foreign governments. Dates of Duration of Hostilities Though it has been stated broadly that the power which declared the necessity is the power to declare its cessation and what the cessation requires. Here, too, analysis reveals isolable reasons for the presence of political questions underlying this court's refusal to review the political department's determination of when or whether a war has ended. Dominant is the need for finality in the political determination, for emergencies, nature demands a prompt and unhesitating obedience. Moreover, the cessation of hostilities does not necessarily end the war power. It was stated in Hamilton v. Kentucky Distilleries that the war power includes the power to remedy the evils which have arisen from its rise and progress, and continues during that emergency. But deference rests on reason, not habit. The question in a particular case may not seriously implicate considerations of finality. For example, a public program of importance like rent control, yet not central to the emergency effort. Further, clearly definable criteria for decision may be available, in such case, the political question barrier falls away. A court is not at liberty to shut its eyes to an obvious mistake when the validity of the law depends upon the truth of what is declared. It can inquire whether the exigency still existed upon which 
the continued operation of the law depended. On the other hand, even in private litigation which directly implicates no feature of separation of powers, lack of judicially discoverable standards and the drive for even-handed application may impel reference to the political department's determination of dates of hostilities beginning and ending. Validity of Enactments In Coleman v. Miller, this court held that the questions of how long a proposed amendment to the federal constitution remained open to ratification and what effect a prior rejection had on a subsequent ratification were committed to congressional resolution and involved criteria of decision that necessarily escaped the judicial grasp. Similar considerations apply to the enacting process. The respect due to co-equal and independent departments and the need for finality and certainty about the status of a statute contribute to judicial reluctance to inquire whether, as passed, it complied with all requisite formalities. But... It is not true that courts will never delve into a legislature's records upon such a quest. If the enrolled statute lacks an effective date, a court will not hesitate to seek it in the legislative journals in order to preserve the enactment. The political question doctrine, a tool for maintenance of governmental order, will not be so applied as to promote only disorder. The Status of Indian Tribes This court's deference to the political departments in determining whether Indians are recognized as a tribe, while it reflects familiar attributes of political questions, also has a unique element in that the relation of the Indians to the United States is marked by peculiar and cardinal distinctions which exist nowhere else. The Indians are domestic dependent nations in a state of pupillage. Their relation to the United States resembles that of a ward to his guardian. Yet, here too, there is no blanket rule. While it is for Congress and not for the courts, to determine when the true interests of the Indian require his release from the condition of tutelage. It is not meant by this that Congress may bring a community or body of people within the range of this power by arbitrarily calling them an Indian tribe. Able to discern what is distinctly Indian, the courts will strike down any heedless extension of that label. They will not stand impotent before an obvious instance of a manifestly unauthorized exercise of power. It is apparent that several formulations, which vary slightly according to the settings in which the questions arise, may describe a political question, although each has one or more elements which identify it as essentially a function of the separation of powers.
prominent on the surface of any case held to involve a political question is found a textually demonstrable constitutional commitment of the issue to a coordinate political department, or a lack of judicially discoverable and manageable standards for resolving it, or the impossibility of deciding without an initial policy determination of a kind clearly for non-judicial discretion, or the impossibility of a court's undertaking independent resolution without expressing lack of the respect due coordinate branches of government, or an unusual need for unquestioning adherence to a political decision already made, or the potentiality of embarrassment from multifarious pronouncements by various departments on one question. Unless one of these formulations is inextricable from the case at bar, there should be no dismissal for non-justiciability on the ground of a political question's presence. The doctrine of which we treat is one of political questions, not one of political cases. The courts cannot reject as no lawsuit a bona fide controversy as to whether some action denominated political exceeds constitutional authority. The cases we have reviewed show the necessity for discriminating inquiry into the precise facts and posture of the particular case and the impossibility of resolution by any semantic cataloging. But it is argued that this case shares the characteristics of decisions that constitute a category not yet considered, cases concerning the Constitution's guarantee in Article 4, Section 4, of a Republican form of government. A conclusion as to whether the case at bar does present a political question cannot be confidently reached until we have considered those cases with special care. We shall discover that guarantee clause claims involve those elements which define a political question, and for that reason and no other, they are non-justiciable. In particular, we shall discover that the non-justiciability of such claims has nothing to do with their touching upon matters of state governmental organization. Republican Form of Government Luther v. Borden, though in form simply an action for damages for trespass, was, as Daniel Webster said in opening the argument for the defense, an unusual case. The defendants, admitting an otherwise tortious breaking and entering, sought to justify their action on the ground that they were agents of the established lawful government of Rhode Island, which state was then under martial law to defend itself from active insurrection. That the plaintiff was engaged in that insurrection and that they entered under orders to arrest the plaintiff. The case arose 
out of the unfortunate political differences which agitated the people of Rhode Island in 1841 and 1842, and which had resulted in a situation wherein two groups laid competing claims to recognition as the lawful government. The plaintiff's right to recover depended upon which of the two groups was entitled to such recognition, but the lower court's refusal to receive evidence or hear argument on that issue, its charge to the jury that the earlier established or charter government was lawful, and the verdict for the defendants were affirmed upon appeal to this court. Chief Justice Tawney's opinion for the court reasoned as follows. 1. If a court were to hold the defendant's acts unjustified because the charter government had no legal existence during the period in question, it would follow that all of that government's actions, laws enacted, taxes collected, salaries paid, accounts settled, sentences passed, were of no effect, and that the officers who carried their decisions into operation were answerable as trespassers, if not, in some cases, as criminals. There was, of course, no room for application of any doctrine of de facto status to uphold prior acts of an officer not authorized de jure for such would have defeated the plaintiff's very action. A decision for the plaintiff would inevitably have produced some significant measure of chaos, a consequence to be avoided if it could be done without abnegation of the judicial duty to uphold the Constitution. 2. No state court had recognized as a judicial responsibility settlement of the issue of the locus of state governmental authority. Indeed, the courts of Rhode Island had in several cases held that it rested with the political power to decide whether the charter government had been displaced or not, and that the department had acknowledged no change. 3. Since the question relates altogether to the Constitution and laws of the state, the courts of the United States had to follow the state court's decisions unless there was a federal constitutional ground for overturning them. 4. No provision of the Constitution could be or had been invoked for this purpose except Article 4, Section 4, the Guarantee Clause. Having already noted the absence of standards whereby the choice between governments could be made by a court acting independently, Chief Justice Taney now found further textual and practical reasons for concluding that if any Department of the United States was empowered by the Guarantee Clause to resolve the issue, it was not the judiciary. Quote, Under this article of the Constitution, 
It rests with the Congress to decide what government is the established one in a state. For as the United States guarantee to each state a Republican government, Congress must necessarily decide what government is established in the state before it can determine whether it is Republican or not. And when the senators and representatives of a state are admitted into the councils of the Union, the authority of the government under which they are appointed, as well as its Republican character, is recognized by the proper constitutional authority, and its decision is binding on every other department of the government, and could not be questioned in a judicial tribunal. It is true that the contest in this case did not last long enough to bring the matter to this issue, and Congress was not called upon to decide the controversy. Yet, the right to decide is placed there, and not in the courts. Unquote. So, too, as relates to the clause in the above-mentioned article of the Constitution, providing for cases of domestic violence. It rested with Congress, too, to determine upon the means proper to be adopted to fulfill this guarantee by the Act of February 28, 1795, Congress provided that, in case of an insurrection in any state against the government thereof, it shall be lawful for the President of the United States on application of the legislature of such state or of the executive, when the legislature cannot be convened, to call forth such number of the militia of any other state or states as may be applied for, as he may judge sufficient to suppress such insurrection. By this act, the power of deciding whether the exigency had arisen upon which the government of the United States is bound to interfere is given to the president. After the president has acted and called out the militia, is a circuit court of the United States authorized to inquire whether his decision was right? If the judicial power extends so far, the guarantee contained in the Constitution of the United States is a guarantee of anarchy and not of order. It is true that, in this case, the militia were not called out by the President, but upon the application of the governor under the charter government, the president recognized him as the executive power of the state and took measures to call out the militia to support his authority if it should be found necessary for the general government to interfere. Certainly no court of the United States, with a knowledge of this decision, would have been justified in recognizing the opposing party as the lawful government. In the case of foreign nations, the government acknowledged by the president is always recognized in the courts of justice. Clearly, 
several factors were thought by the court in Luther to make the question there political. The commitment to the other branches of the decision as to which is the lawful state government, the unambiguous action by the president in recognizing the charter government as the lawful authority, the need for finality in the executive's decision, and the lack of criteria by which a court could determine which form of government was Republican. But the only significance that Luther could have for our immediate purposes is in its holding that the Guarantee Clause is not a repository of judicially manageable standards, which a court could utilize independently in order to identify a state's lawful government. The court has since refused to resort to the Guarantee Clause, which alone had been invoked for the purpose as the source of a constitutional standard for invalidating state action. Just as the court has consistently held that a challenge to state action based on the Guarantee Clause presents no justiciable question, so has it held, and for the same reasons, that challenges to congressional action on the ground of inconsistency with that clause present no justiciable question. In Georgia v. Stanton, the state sought by an original bill to enjoin execution of the Reconstruction Acts, claiming that it already possessed a Republican state in every political, legal, constitutional, and juridical sense, and that enforcement of the new acts, instead of keeping the guarantee against a forcible overthrow of its government by foreign invaders or domestic insurgents, is destroying that very government by force. Congress had clearly refused to recognize the Republican character of the government of the suing state, It seemed to the court that the only constitutional claim that could be presented was under the Guarantee Clause, and Congress, having determined that the effects of the recent hostilities required extraordinary measures to restore governments of a Republican form, this court refused to interfere with Congress's action at the behest of a claimant relying on that very guarantee. In only a few other cases has the court considered Article 4, Section 4 in relation to congressional action. It has refused to pass on a claim relying on the Guarantee Clause to establish that Congress lacked power to allow the states to employ the referendum in passing on legislation redistricting for congressional seats. And it has pointed out that Congress is not required to establish Republican government in the territories before they become states, and before they have attained a sufficient population to warrant a popularly elected legislature. We come, finally, to the ultimate inquiry whether our precedents as to what constitutes a non-justiciable political question 
bring the case before us under the umbrella of that doctrine. A natural beginning is to know whether any of the common characteristics which we have been able to identify and label descriptively are present. We find none. The question here is the consistency of state action with the federal constitution. We have no questions decided or to be decided by a political branch of government co-equal with this court. Nor do we risk embarrassment of our government abroad or grave disturbance at home if we take issue with Tennessee as the constitutionality of her action here challenged. Nor need the appellants, in order to succeed in this action, ask the court to enter upon policy determinations for which judicially manageable standards are lacking. Judicial standards under the Equal Protection Clause are well developed and familiar, and it has been open to courts since the enactment of the 14th Amendment to determine if, on the particular facts, they must, that a discrimination reflects no policy but simply arbitrary and capricious action. This case does, in one sense, involve the allocation of political power within a state, and the appellants might conceivably have added a claim under the Guarantee Clause. Of course, as we have seen, any reliance on that clause would be futile. But because any reliance on the Guarantee Clause could not have succeeded, it does not follow that appellants may not be heard on the Equal Protection Claim, which, in fact, they tender. True, it must be clear that the 14th Amendment claim is not so enmeshed with those political question elements which render guarantee clause claims non-justiciable as actually to present a political question itself. But we have found that not to be the case here. In this connection, Special attention is due Pacific States Telco v. Oregon. In that case, a corporation tax statute enacted by the initiative was attacked ostensibly on three grounds. One, due process. Two, equal protection. And three, the guarantee clause but it was clear that the first two grounds were invoked solely in aid of the contention that the tax was invalid by reason of its passage. Quote, The defendant company does not contend here that it could not have been required to pay a license tax. It does not assert that it was denied an opportunity to be heard as to the amount for which it was taxed, or that there was anything in hearing in the tax or involved intrinsically in the law which violated any of its constitutional rights. If such questions had been raised, they would have been justiciable, 
and therefore would have required the calling into operation of judicial power. Instead, however, of doing any of these things, the attack on the statute here made is of a wholly different character. Its essentially political nature is at once made manifest by understanding that the assault which the contention here advanced makes it not on the tax as a tax, but on the state as a state. It is addressed to the framework and political character of the government by which the statute levying the tax was passed. It is the government, the political entity, which, reducing the case to its essence, is called to the bar of this court not for the purpose of testing judicially some exercise of power assailed on the ground that its exertion has injuriously affected the rights of an individual because of repugnancy to some constitutional limitation, but to demand of the state that it establish its right to exist as a state, republican in form. Unquote. The due process and equal protection claims were held non-justiciable in Pacific states, not because they happened to be joined with the Guarantee Clause claim or because they sought to place before the court a subject matter which might conceivably have been dealt with through the Guarantee Clause, but because the court believed that they were invoked merely in verbal aid of the resolution of issues which, in its view, entailed political questions. Pacific states may be compared with cases such as Mountain Timber Company v. Washington, wherein the court refused to consider whether a Workmen's Compensation Act violated the Guarantee Clause, but considered at length and rejected due process and equal protection arguments advanced against it. And O'Neill v. Lemur, wherein the court refused to consider whether Nebraska's delegation of power to form drainage districts violated the Guarantee Clause, but went on to consider and reject the contention that the action against which an injunction was sought was not a taking for public purpose. We conclude, then, that the non-justiciability of claims resting on the Guarantee Clause, which arises from their embodiment of questions that were thought political, can have no bearing upon the justiciability of the equal protection claim presented in this case. Finally, we emphasize that it is the involvement in the Guarantee Clause claims of the elements thought to define political questions and no other feature which could render them non-justiciable. Specifically, we have said that such claims are not held non-justiciable because they touch matters of state governmental organization. A brief examination of a few cases demonstrates this. When challenges to state action respecting matters of the administration of the affairs of the state 
and the officers through whom they are conducted have rested on claims of constitutional deprivation, which are amenable to judicial correction. This court has acted upon its view of the merits of the claim. For example, in Boyd v. Nebraska X. Ralph Thayer, we reversed the Nebraska Supreme Court's decision that Nebraska's governor was not a citizen of the United States or of the state and therefore could not continue in office. In Kennard v. Louisiana X. Rel. Morgan and Foster v. Kansas X. Rel. Johnston, we considered whether persons had been removed from public office by procedures consistent with the 14th Amendment's due process guarantee and held on the merits that they had. And only last term, in Gomillion v. Lightfoot, we applied the 15th Amendment to strike down a redrafting of municipal boundaries which affected a discriminatory impairment of voting rights in the face of what a majority of the Court of Appeals thought to be a sweeping commitment to state legislatures of the power to draw and redraw such boundaries. Gomillion was brought by a Negro who had been a resident of the city of Tuskegee, Alabama, until the municipal boundaries were so recast by the state legislature as to exclude practically all Negroes. The plaintiff claimed deprivation of the right to vote in municipal elections. The district court's dismissal for want of jurisdiction and failure to state a claim upon which relief could be granted was affirmed by the Court of Appeals. This court unanimously reversed. This court's answer to the argument that states enjoyed unrestricted control over municipal boundaries was, quote, Legislative control of municipalities, no less than other state power, lies within the scope of relevant limitations imposed by the United States Constitution. The opposite conclusion urged upon us by respondents, would sanction the achievement by a state of any impairment of voting rights, whatever, so long as it was cloaked in the garb of the realignment of political subdivisions. It is inconceivable that guarantees embedded in the Constitution of the United States may thus be manipulated out of existence." To a second argument that Colgrove v. Green was a barrier to hearing the merits of the case, the court responded that Gomillion was lifted out of the so-called political arena and into the conventional sphere of constitutional litigation because here was discriminatory treatment of a racial minority violating the 15th Amendment. A statute which is alleged to have worked unconstitutional deprivations of petitioners' rights is not immune to attack simply because the mechanism employed by the legislature is a redefinition of municipal boundaries. 
while in form, this is merely an act redefining meets and bounds. If the allegations are established, the inescapable human effect of this essay in geometry and geography is to despoil colored citizens, and only colored citizens, of their theretofore enjoyed voting rights. That was not Colgrove v. Green. When a state exercises power wholly within the domain of the state interest, it is insulated from federal judicial review. But such insulation is not carried over when state power is used as an instrument for circumventing a federally protected right. We have not overlooked such cases as In Ray Sawyer and Walton v. House of Representatives, which held that federal equity power could not be exercised to enjoin a state proceeding to remove a public officer. But these decisions explicitly reflect only a traditional limit upon equity jurisdiction and not upon federal courts' power to inquire into matters of state governmental organization. This is clear not only from the opinions in those cases, but also from White v. Berry, which, relying on Sawyer, withheld federal equity from staying removal of a federal officer. Wilson v. North Carolina simply dismissed an appeal from an unsuccessful suit to upset a state's removal procedure on the ground that the constitutional claim presented that a jury trial was necessary if the removal procedure was to comport with due process requirements was frivolous. Finally, in Taylor and Marshall v. Beckham, where losing candidates attacked the constitutionality of Kentucky's resolution of a contested gubernatorial election, the court refused to consider the merits of a claim posited upon the Guarantee Clause, holding it presented a political question, but also held on the merits that the ousted candidates had suffered no deprivation of property without due process of law. Since, as has been established, the equal protection claim tendered in this case does not require decision of any political question, and since the presence of a matter affecting state government does not render the case non-justiciable, it seems appropriate to examine again the reasoning by which the district court reached its conclusion that the case was non-justiciable. We have already noted that the district court's holding that the subject matter of this complaint was non-justiciable relied upon Colgrove v. Green and later cases. Some of those concerned the choice of members of a state legislature, as in this case. Others, like Colgrove itself and earlier precedents, concerned the choice of representatives in the federal Congress. Smiley 
Koenig, and Carroll settled the issue in favor of justiciability of questions of congressional redistricting. The court followed these precedents in Colgrove, although over the dissent of three of the seven justices who participated in that decision. On the issue of justiciability, all four justices comprising a majority relied upon Smiley v. Holm, but in two opinions, one for three justices and a separate one by Mr. Justice Rutledge. The argument that congressional redistricting problems presented a political question, the resolution of which was confided to Congress, might have been rested upon Article 1, Section 4, Article 1, Section 5, Article 1, Section 2, and Amendment 14, Section 2. Mr. Justice Rutledge said, But for the ruling in Smiley v. Holm, I should have supposed that the provisions of the Constitution Article 1, Section 4, that the times, places, and manner of holding elections for representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations. Vesting in Congress the duty of apportionment of representatives among the several states according to their respective numbers. And Article 1, Section 5, making each house the sole judge of the qualification of its own members, would remove the issues in this case from justiciable cognizance. But in my judgment, the Smiley case rules squarely to the contrary, save only in the matter of degree. Assuming that that decision is to stand. I think that its effect is to rule that this court has power to afford relief in a case of this type as against the objection that the issues are not justiciable. Accordingly, Mr. Justice Rutledge joined in the conclusion that the case was justiciable, although he held that the dismissal of the complaint should be affirmed. His view was that the shortness of the time remaining before forthcoming elections makes it doubtful whether action could or would be taken in time to secure for petitioners the effective relief they seek. I think, therefore, the case is one in which the court may properly and should decline to exercise its jurisdiction. Accordingly, the judgment should be affirmed, and I join in that disposition of the cause. Article 1, Sections 2, 4, and 5, and Amendment 14, Section 2, relate only to congressional elections, and obviously do not govern apportionment of state legislatures. However, our decisions in favor of justiciability, even in light of those provisions, 
plainly afford no support for the district court's conclusion that the subject matter of this controversy presents a political question. Indeed, the refusal to award relief in Colgrove resulted only from the controlling view of a want of equity. Nor is anything contrary to be found in those procuriums that came after Colgrove. This court dismissed the appeals in Cook v. Fortson and Terman v. Duckworth as moot. McDougall v. Green held only that, in that case, equity would not act to void the state's requirement that there be at least a minimum of support for nominees for statewide office over at least a minimal area of the state. Problems of timing were critical in Remy v. Smith, dismissing for want of a substantial federal question a three-judge court's dismissal of the suit as prematurely brought and in Hartsfield v. Sloan, denying mandamus sought to compel the convening of a three-judge court, movements urged the court to advance consideration of their case. Inasmuch as the mere lapse of time before this case can be reached in the normal course of business may defeat the cause, and inasmuch as the time problem is due to the inherent nature of the case. South v. Peters, like Colgrove, appears to be a refusal to exercise equity's powers, and Cox v. Peters dismissed for want of a substantial federal question the appeal from the state court's holding that their primary elections implicated no state action. Tedesco v. Board of Supervisors indicates solely that no substantial federal question was raised by a state court's refusal to upset the districting of city council seats, especially as it was urged that there was a rational justification for the challenged districting. Similarly, in Anderson v. Jordan, it was certain only that the state court had refused to issue a discretionary writ, original mandamus, in the Supreme Court. That had been denied without opinion, and, of course, it was urged here that an adequate state ground barred this court's review. And in Kidd v. McCandless, the Supreme Court of Tennessee held that it could not invalidate the very statute at issue in the case at bar, but its holding rested on its state law of remedies, i.e., the state view of de facto officers, and not on any view that the norm for legislative apportionment in Tennessee is not numbers of qualified voters resident in the several counties. Of course, this court was there precluded by the adequate state ground, and in dismissing the appeal, we cited Anderson as well as Colgrove.
nor does the Tennessee court's decision in that case bear upon this, for just as in Smith v. Holm and McGraw v. Donovan, a state court's inability to grant relief does not bar a federal court's assuming jurisdiction to inquire into alleged deprivation of federal constitutional rights. Problems of relief also controlled in Radford v. Gary, affirming the district court's refusal to mandamus the governor to call a session of the legislature to mandamus the legislature then to apportion, and if they did not comply, to mandamus the state Supreme Court to do so. And Matthews v. Handley affirmed a refusal to strike down the state's gross income tax statute, urged on the ground that the legislature was malapportioned, that had rested on the adequacy of available state legal remedies for suits involving that tax, including challenges to its constitutionality. Lastly, in Colgrove v. Barrett, in which Mr. Justice Rutledge concurred in this court's refusal to note the appeal from a dismissal for want of equity is sufficiently explained by his statement in Cook v. Fortson. Quote, the discretionary exercise or non-exercise of equitable or declaratory judgment jurisdiction in one case is not precedent in another case where the facts differ. Unquote. We conclude that the complaint's allegations of a denial of equal protection present a justiciable constitutional cause of action upon which appellants are entitled to a trial and a decision. The right asserted is within the reach of the judicial protection under the 14th Amendment. The judgment of the district court is reversed, and the cause is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. Reversed and remanded. We've come to the end of the opinion. If you'd like to reach out and say hey or request a particular opinion to be read on the show, visit whatscotuswroteus.podbean.com for contact information. I'd love to hear from you. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What Scotus Wrote Us.